Thanks, Justin. Well, hey, welcome to Center Church, whether you're here in person or you're with us online. We are really, really glad that you're here. So in 1954, uh, former President Dwight Eisenhower said this, I have two kinds of problems, the urgent and the important. The urgent are not important, and the important are never urgent. Okay, now what's fascinating about Eisenhower is that he said that in addressing a large group of churches. And here's the point that he was making. Just as he as the president of the United States had to keep his eyes on what was important to lead effectively, so too churches have to keep their eyes on mission if we're going to accomplish it. Now, the temptation within the church for individual Christians is to be driven by what's urgent, by the email that just came in, by the check engine light that just came on, by the yard that needs to get cut, by the activities that your kids need to get to. And if you're anything like me, here's what can happen. You can spend your whole life dealing with urgent things, and you can fail to address the important things. Okay, so what is the most important thing for any church? It is our commission, our commission from the Lord Jesus Christ found in Matthew 28, where Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Right? This is a weighty and wonderful responsibility. Here's what the Lord Jesus, the risen king of the universe, has decided. That his strategy for taking the good news of the gospel of salvation through grace to the nations of the world is through us. That is Jesus' strategy. That might not be a good strategy. Take it up with him, but that's a strategy. Okay, If the gospel is going to go to the nations of the world, if it's going to go to your neighbors across the street, it's going to be because you take it there. What a wonderful and weighty responsibility. It has global implications. Here's the problem. Most of us aren't doing it. Right? I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, most of us aren't sharing the gospel. Most of us don't know how. We don't know how to have a spiritual conversation with a friend. We don't know how to actually share the good news of the gospel. We don't know how to help someone repent and believe and become a Christian. We don't know how to help someone grow up into maturity as a believer. Or if we do know, we are doing it. Right? We simply aren't doing it. The stats are conclusive. They show that the vast majority of people who believe that the Bible is the word of God, uppers of 95% are not regularly sharing their faith. Why? Is it because you hate Jesus? Right? I don't think so. Right? Is it because you're just hard-hearted and stiff-necked and you're rebellious and you just won't do it? I don't think so. If you're anything like me, I think it's because the urgent has crowded out the important. I think it's because the urgent of your life has crowded out the important. You have good intentions to make disciples. You want to look back on your life and see a line of men and women that you have led to faith in Christ and built up into mature Christians. You want to get to heaven and be met by a crowd of people that say, thank you for sharing the gospel with me, right? That's what you want. That's what I want. But unfortunately, those good intentions get crowded out by the urgent, and they remain simply that, good intentions. That is our problem. We've been given a weighty and wonderful commission, and yet we struggle to carry it out. So what's our solution? If you can relate with me, if you have that same problem, what is our solution? Well, we need to be regularly inspired, empowered, and equipped to make disciples. We need to be inspired, empowered, and equipped to make disciples. We need to be reminded of just how important our commission is, and we need to be given practical tools so that we know how to do it. Well, that is what our 2021 Discipleship Conference is all about. Our 2021 Discipleship Conference is all about giving you the tools that you need and the inspiration that you lack to go and make disciples so that our good intentions can become good follow-through. It's happening right here in this room, uh, August 13th and 14th. We're going to have an incredible time together. We're going to hear powerful teaching. Man, we're going to eat together. We're going to rejoice together, sing together. It is going to be an encouragement to you, whether you are a brand new Christian, whether you've been a Christian for a while, but you want to grow in your faith, or whether you're a seasoned saint, it is going to be beneficial. So here's what I want to invite you to do. I want you to come. Okay, I want you to sign up. I want you to come. We'll take care of your kids. We'll feed you. All you have to do is go to the website, centerseva.com backslash conference, and take a step towards making the important things in your life primary so they don't get crowded out by the urgent, okay? 
All right, well, with that being said, if you have a Bible, you can type to or turn to Mark chapter 6. Type to or turn to Mark chapter 6. We've been walking through the gospel of Mark verse by verse, chapter by chapter for the last 12 weeks, and we come to Mark chapter 6. And I want to start by asking you a question. Why don't some people believe in Jesus? Why don't some people believe in Jesus? Why don't your neighbors believe in Jesus? Why don't your classmates? Why don't so many members of your family believe the gospel? What is the source of unbelief in their lives? To be a little more personal, what's the source of unbelief in your life? Where does unbelief come from? Right? There are a lot of answers to that, but this chapter in particular hones in on two sources. This whole chapter is a bit of a challenging chapter because it's about unbelief. You see, last week we looked at two stories of faith. This week we look at two stories of unbelief. You find one in a small town, you find another in a powerful politician. Two very different people but the same result. Two different sources of unbelief, but the same end game. They do not believe in Christ. And this chapter is challenging because it talks about the the sober reality that many people do not believe the good news of the gospel even when they hear it. It's also sobering because as we learn these characters, we're gonna find that they're pretty similar to us. You're gonna find yourself relating to these people maybe, maybe more than you would like to. And so it's a warning to us that if these characters could become, un, could become hardened in unbelief, then we can too. But it's also a hopeful chapter. Because by understanding the sources of unbelief in this chapter, we can also deal with them. And so that's what we're going to learn in Mark chapter 6. We're going to learn two sources of unbelief and then how to deal with it in our lives. So look at verse 1 with me. He went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. So Jesus left Capernaum, which was by the Sea of Galilee. He started traveling inland to his hometown, which was Nazareth. So Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He spent several years in Egypt as a refugee, but then he grew up in Nazareth. What do we know about Nazareth? Well, it's a very, very small town, a village really. Based on the size of the well there, it could not have supported more than 200 people. It was in the middle of a pretty economically depressed region, and it had a bad reputation. So in John chapter 1, when Nathaniel hears that Jesus is from Nazareth, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right, So it was a podunk town in the middle of nowhere with a bad reputation. So let me ask you, why did Jesus take his disciples there? Why leave Capernaum, which was much bigger, all kinds of things were going on. Why leave Capernaum and go to Nazareth? Well, I think it was to show his disciples what rejection looks like. Because think about it. To this point, Jesus was like Steph Curry in a shooting rhythm. Right? Like everything is going in, like from ridiculous angles and distances. It's like paralytics walking, blind people seeing, storms calmed, bleeding woman healed, dead girl raised to life. And you've got to imagine the disciples are like, this ministry thing is awesome, right? Like this is so easy. I can't wait to get out there. So Jesus knows that. He knows that's not always how it's going to be. So maybe he thinks to himself this maybe he thinks, where can I take them to show what discouragement feels like? I know. I'll take them home, right? Like, I will take them home. And some of you laugh because you know that's true, right? So Jesus takes his disciples home. This is what happens. Verse 2. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter? Read their village handyman. Is not this the carpenter? the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. If you underline your Bible, underline offense at him. That word offense at him is the translation of the Greek word scandalon, which is where we get the word scandalous. You see, the people in Nazareth were scandalized by Jesus. They had a visceral reaction 
to him. Now, why was it? Was it because of what he taught? No. Was it because of what he did? No. It was because of how well they knew him. It wasn't his teaching. It wasn't his works. It was his background that they were offended by. This is Mary's son. I mean, his brothers and sisters are right here in town with us. He has fixed my house before. Like, no way is this guy the Messiah. Who does he think he is telling us what the scriptures mean and calling us to respond? You see, they refused to believe in Jesus because they were so familiar with him. They refused to believe in Jesus because they were so familiar with him, which leads to the first source of unbelief we see in this text. Number one, familiarity. Familiarity. What happened in Nazareth, friends, can easily happen to us. What happened then can happen now. You can be so familiar with the things of God that they become common to you. They no longer register with you intellectually. They no longer move you emotionally. They never call you to respond. A few years ago, I visited Manhattan for the very first time, and I was overwhelmed. Every time I would get off the subway, you walk up the steps if you've ever been there, I would just stop, classic tourist, and stare up for 30 seconds. Like mouth open, you know, disturbing flow of traffic. Why? Because it is a remarkable place. I mean, I, I don't even have, I didn't have a concept for how big that city is. Like it is gigantic. Everywhere you look, there's these huge skyscrapers. The architecture is just mind blowing. It is beautiful everywhere. It just goes on and on and on and on and on. And so every time I came up from the subway, 30 seconds, head in the air, like it was ridiculous. I couldn't help it. It was so overwhelming and awe-inspiring and remarkable. Do you know who never looks up? New Yorkers. New Yorkers never look up. Do you know why? Because it doesn't move them anymore. They're so familiar with the, with the incredible nature of their city that they're not moved by it. Maybe you've heard the phrase before, familiarity breeds contempt. Well, familiarity also can breed unbelief. Just as familiarity can breed contempt, so also familiarity can breed unbelief. You can become so familiar with the gospel that you take it for granted that it doesn't move you anymore. You're no longer awed by the fact that God died for sinners. God died. Like, let that settle in for a second. God died for righteous people, for heroes, for great men and women. No, for wicked, rebellious sinners. God died for people that rejected him, spat in his face, and have spent their entire lives running as fast as they could away from him and towards hell. God died for those people. God died for you. And yet, if you've been around the church long, you can shrug your shoulders and say, yeah, I think I heard that once. Romans 5.8, for God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We can say we believe that, and yet it can mean so little in our lives that we look for love in every other place. That love is not enough for me. I need it in relationships. I need it in my family. I need it from my boss. I need it from society. I need the approval and affirmation and affection and love of everyone else because God's love is so unimportant to me. Oh, yeah, sure, of course God died for me. Why wouldn't he? I'm so great. Friends, the gospel is, is, is remarkable. It is scandalous. It should overwhelm us and lead us to, man, just awe-inspired worship. And yet so often, if you grew up in church, it leads you to shrug your shoulders and go through the motions. Here's the thing. You are most in danger of becoming like the people of Nazareth if you grew up around the church. If you've been in church most of your life, if you've been to youth group, if you've been to you know, summer camp, if you went to Christian college and Christian school and you've been around a lot of ministries, you are a prime candidate for unbelief. Hear me, Satan's primary weapon against church people is not external rebellion, it is internal complacency. 
Satan's primary weapon against you, if you grew up in the church, is not external rebellion. It is internal complacency. It is that you would come in here on Sunday with your hands in your pockets, you would listen half, half engaged, and you would leave unmoved. That is Satan's primary weapon against you. Because a complacent church is not a danger to the kingdom of darkness. Satan's like, oh, I don't, have to, I don't have to get them out in the world living crazy. I can just keep them in the church and make them complacent. Because not only will they not do anything, no one's going to want to come to that. The world's not going to be shocked by a bunch of complacent people who are gathering to shrug their shoulders two Sundays a month. Friends, if you grew up in church like I did, this is a grave danger for us. Familiarity breeds unbelief. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that the primary thing, one of the primary things that characterizes a real Christian, someone who has truly been born again and has a new nature, the spirit of God is within them now. They're no longer a part of the world. You know what it is? That that person hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Hungers and thirsts for righteousness. That means that that person, a true Christian, has an internal longing and desire to become more like Jesus. That they're thinking about it all the time. That they're, they're longing for it. When they don't have it, it pains them. They will not stop until they get righteousness. That is what characterizes vibrant, born-again, regenerated, spirit-filled faith. Does that describe your faith? Does that describe your faith? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do you long to be more like Jesus? Are you tearing down every obstacle that gets in your way? Are you making use of all the means of grace that God has given you from the local church to community to Bible study to resources? Or are you just shrugging your shoulders, going through the motions? Here a couple times a month, oh, it's fine, I'm sure it's good. Is Christianity a vibrant reality to you or is it a helpful worldview? Is Christianity something that you believe, that you see with the eyes of your heart, that you're moved by, that you're changed by, or is it a nice place to make some friends, meet a nice girl, and make sure your kids get good virtues? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Look, this has implications not only for you personally, it has implications for our church, and it has implications for your family. A study was done years ago to understand why is it that spiritually vibrant families and churches end up spiritually dead? What happens? Here's what they found. The first generation believes the gospel. The second generation assumes the gospel. The third generation abandons the gospel. That's how it works. So let me ask you, which generation do you fit in? If you're honest with yourself, which generation do you fit in? Is your faith vibrant? Are you amazed that Jesus chose you? Just like blown? Like, does it shock you that you're a Christian? That you're like, I can't believe I got in. Right? Like, it is crazy that Jesus chose me. Or you're like, no, of course he would choose me. Right? Are, are, you, are you blown away by the fact that Jesus Christ died for you? He died for you? That he has cleansed you? That he has removed your shame? That he's removed your guilt? That he's given you an inheritance? That he's given you standing with the Father? That he's put his spirit in you? That he's commissioned you to be his ambassador in the world? Man, does that overwhelm you? Does that inspire you? Does that, does that empower you? Does that make you hold your head high as you go out into the world? Does that fill you with purpose and meaning and grittiness and steadfastness in the midst of opposition? Or do you just kind of shrug your shoulders at it? Oh, yeah. I, I think I heard that at some point. I, have, I think I have VBS craft, maybe. I'm not sure. Right? Man, are we defined by vibrant faith or have we become like the people in Nazareth? We're so familiar with Jesus that we've become used to Jesus that we've been complacent about our faith. Here's a good test of the temperature of your faith. Man, how do you approach church? How do you approach church? Like this gathering, how do you approach church? Is it a priority in your life? 
Like, is it a rock in your schedule that you're like, hey, we're coming home early from the beach so that we don't miss church? Hey, we're not gonna go and do that thing Sunday afternoon so that we don't miss church. Hey, I'm gonna get there. I'm building things around this. I can't come to your soccer practice, your birthday party, because it's in the midst of my gathering of my local church. That is how valuable it is to me. When you come in, are you engaged? Are you expectant? Is your heart full? Are you ready to sing? Are you ready to listen to the word of God? Are you ready to respond? Or do you have two hands in your pockets? Are you getting here 10 minutes late? Are you, are you half somewhere else the entire time? If you don't look forward to the gathering of the saints, I don't know how you can have vibrant faith. Like if, if this is just like something you go through the motions and it's just like, oh, what the heck? Like I don't even know what we're talking about. That is the danger of growing up around the church, that we'd be a, a, a group of people that are just complacent and just take it all for granted. You know who never takes the gospel for granted? New Christians. One of the reasons I love meeting with new Christians, I love new Christians in our church because they're still blown away by it all. They're like, Jesus died for me. Do you know what I did last weekend? We're like, yeah, man. Like, it's just some new Christians don't take the gospel for granted. It's those of us who've grown up around the church who could tell you some Bible verses, who've been around the block, that just treat it like, oh, yeah, it's no big deal. And when we do, we disciple new Christians to do the same thing. Oh, heaven forbid. Heaven forbid. Is your attitude towards church like David's? I love David's. Psalm 27, 4, he said this, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after. What is it, David? That, that your circumstances would change? That you would be more comfortable? That you'd have, be in a relationship? That you'd get a, a new job? One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after. What are you going to seek after, David? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David longed to be in the house of God. David longed to be with the people of God. David longed to worship with the congregation of the righteous. Does that characterize your attitude towards church? Does that characterize your attitude towards church? Look, I, I want you to be familiar with Jesus. I do. I want you to be familiar with his character, his teaching, his atoning death for you, his victorious resurrection, his reign at the Father's right hand, his imminent return in glory. I want you to know the Bible inside and out because hear me, I believe it will be life to your soul. It will be refreshment to your bones. It will cause you to flourish. It will build you up. I want you to know the things of God, but I don't want you to, be become, I don't want you to become complacent to the things of God. I don't want familiarity to lead to unbelief. So how do we keep that from happening? How do we keep familiarity from leading to unbelief? We have to remember. We have to remember. We have to remember that we live every single moment, quorum Deo, before the face of God Almighty. That our lives are one large stage for the glory of God to be displayed. We have to remember that every single moment that we live, every single thing that we do has meaning because we're doing it before God's face. We have to remember how desperately we need grace I love what Jerry Bridges said. He said, on your best days, you still need the grace of God. And on your worst days, you aren't outside of the grace of God. Oh, praise the Lord for that. On your best days, you need it. On your worst days, you aren't outside of it. Lord, we, we fight familiarity by resolving to not just read the Bible, but obey the Bible. Because nothing will remind you of your need for grace than actually trying to obey the Bible. Never am I more aware of my need for Jesus than when I'm trying to be the kind of husband I'm supposed to be or the kind of dad I'm supposed to be, or the kind of friend or neighbor I'm supposed to be, right? When we all, we're resolved to actually obey the Bible, not just listen to the Bible, it, it just reminds us of how much we need the grace of God, how much we need the Spirit of God in our lives. Familiarity with the things of God should make us humble, grateful, and hungry for righteousness. That is what familiarity with the things of God should do. The question is, has it? Has it created that in your life? If so, praise God. If not, 
If you're looking at the, the, the people from Nazareth and saying, man, I kind of relate with them. Man, take heed. Familiarity can breed unbelief. Okay, look back at verse 4. And Jesus said to them, the people in Nazareth, man, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled. What did Jesus marvel at? He marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. So Jesus said to his disciples, hey, it's always been this way. If you look in the Old Testament, uh, prophets in the Old Testament were listened to and admired by people from all over except their hometown. They were often scorned there. And there's kind of a warning here. What does Jesus do? He just moves on. He's like, okay, if you're going to be hardened on belief, I'm going to other villages. And you see how it says he could not do mighty works there? You see how it says there? Here's what that means. That doesn't mean Jesus could not do those works, but that he would not do those works because of their unbelief. And Matthew kind of clarifies this for us in Matthew 13, 58. He says, he did not do many miracles there because of, or as a result of, their lack of faith. And here's what that means for us practically. The degree that we see God's power at work in our lives, in our marriages, in our kids, in our church, and in our community has a lot to do with the amount of faith that we exhibit. You see, faith is the conduit by which God's power is poured out in the world. Faith is the conduit. It's like the power line that comes into our homes. It is the conduit of God's power in the world. The Holy Spirit is pleased to work in and through churches that invite him to do so. That invite him to do so. Have you ever noticed that there, there are some churches where it seems like, man, people's lives are being changed. People are coming to faith in Christ. Man, sin is being repented of. Marriages are being restored. People are being baptized. Missionaries are being sent out. The community is being served. You're like, man, stuff is happening there. And in other churches where it's just like, hey, nothing going on. Right? Usually the difference isn't that obvious. Sometimes the, the style's very similar. Sometimes the music's very similar. Sometimes the preaching is very similar. What's the difference? I would suggest that it's a difference of faith. One church is giving by faith, serving by faith, repenting by faith, believing by faith, inviting the Holy Spirit to move, and the other has become complacent. Right? When we posture ourselves before the Holy Spirit and we say, we want you to move in our lives, we want you to move in this church, we're going to walk by faith, believing that you are going to meet us there, he is pleased to do so. Faith invites the work of the Spirit. Unbelief quenches the work of the Spirit. So I want us to be the kind of church where the Holy Spirit is at work. And in our lives, changing us, growing us, restoring us, blessing our families, and in our community, changing people by the gospel. Verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust. Circle that. We'll come back to it. Shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So if you remember way back to chapter 3, when Jesus called his 12 disciples, he did so so that they might be with him. So fellowship, and that he might send them out to preach, mission. The same is true for us today. Jesus calls his disciples, if you're one of his disciples, to be with him, to know him more, to fellowship with him, and he sends you out on mission in the world. And this passage shows us practically a couple ways that we should go out on mission in the world, okay? This is the way that they went out. It's the way that we should go out today. First, we should go out with conviction. We should go out with conviction. The disciples preached. You see that? They heralded they proclaimed. They had a definite message that they proclaimed and they called people to respond. They didn't say, hey guys, this is what happened to me. This is like my truth. No, they said, this is the truth. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. They didn't apologize for it. 
Look, we must be unafraid to draw with bold, clear lines where the scriptures draw with bold, clear lines. Can I suggest to you that over the last 20 years, Christians have become unashamed to say bold things, and our culture has become very proud of saying bold things? It seems to me that the only people not speaking boldly right now are Christians. Like everywhere I go, there's signs with lots of bold statements that I disagree with, but everybody else is being bold. I don't understand why we have this incredible, like, oh my gosh, I can't say, it's like everyone else is saying it. Everyone in your neighborhood, in your dorm room, and on social media, and all the news networks that you watch, they're all proclaiming bold truth. So it's like, why are Christians, oh, I don't want to do it, I don't want to be seen as judgmental. Everyone else is, right? Like there's just, there's just no, there's just no, like when we make the lines fuzzy of what the Bible teaches, we help no one. Right? We just help no one. They're like, so, I don't, so we all believe the same thing? Is that No, it's like we, we believe different things. Like the gospel is a definite message, and we must be unafraid to proclaim a clear message. We must go out with conviction. Secondly, we must go out with kindness. We must go out with kindness. Do you see what Jesus sent them out to do? He said, hey, as you got to proclaim, to preach the word, man, heal the sick and cast out demons. Man, care for the people that you're ministering to. Man, serve them. Pray for them. Minister to their physical needs as, as well as their spiritual needs. Man, be a good friend and be a good neighbor as you're sharing the good news, right? We must go out with conviction, but we should also go out with kindness, right? If all we have is conviction, we often come off brash. If all we have is kindness, no one has any idea what makes us different than everyone else. But when we go out with both conviction and kindness, we're a bit offensive, but we're also attractive. Because like, I'm not sure I believe everything that you believe right now, but man, you treat me really well. And you're a very kind neighbor, and, and your friends, you, your friends are able to have fun without alcohol. How do you do that? Right? I, would, I, I could tell you story after story of here in our church where folks have become intrigued by the gospel because they've just seen the life of one of our believers, one of our members, and have said, like, there's something different about you. I want to know more of what it is. So we go out with conviction. We go out with kindness. We also go out in faith. Do you notice how Jesus told them not to take anything with them? Man, no bag, no money, no food. Now, why was that? He was teaching them dependence. He was saying, hey, go out, and you're going to have to trust for, that God is going to provide for you through the hospitality of the people you minister to. You're not going to go out in your own strength. You're going to go out independence. You're not going to feel strong. You're not going to feel like you have your act together. You're going to go out by faith. Now, what's interesting is that later on in Luke 22, Jesus sent them out and told them to bring things explicitly. So why did he tell them to bring things there and not here? He wanted them to learn the lesson of faith. He wanted them to learn the lesson of faith. Well, in the same way, we have to learn to go out independence. We have to go out in faith. Here's the thing. If you're waiting to feel totally, absolutely equipped to share the gospel, you're going to be waiting until Jesus returns, right? Like if you're waiting for that perfect moment where it won't be awkward at all, you'll wait until Jesus returns. <laughs> like if you're, if you're just waiting for everything to line up, it's never going to happen. Man, if we're only going to share the gospel where we feel totally confident in ourselves to do it, we will never share. The whole point is that we don't have the power. The whole point is it, no one is going to become a Christian because of your incredible questions, like, they're going to become a Christian because you share as best you can the good news of the gospel, and you pray for them, right? And you pray for them. And after this, we're going to baptize at the end of our service, both of our services today. That is evidence of the fact that God works when we go out in faith. The people who shared the gospel with the folks that came to Christ here who are going to get baptized didn't do it perfectly. If you asked them, they probably didn't feel awesome when they were doing it. They're like, I don't even know if I shared it right. You know, like, I might have taught them heresy. I don't know. And yet, like, God used it. So we have to go out in faith, not depending on ourselves, not depending on our slick presentations or how confident we are or funny we are or winsome we are, man, but believing that the power resides not in us, but in the word that we share. Okay, so we go out with conviction, with kindness, and with faith. That's what the disciples did. And it, it seems like it went pretty well, right? It says they, they proclaimed the gospel. They healed many sick people. They cast out many demons. Very, very encouraging short-term mission trip, okay? So you've got unbelief in Nazareth, discouraging. 
Great short-term mission trip, encouraging, and now we land with something really discouraging, in particular someone really discouraging, named King Herod, okay? And things are going to get a little intricate at this point, so just bear with me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the verses. I'm going to explain to you all what's going on because there's a lot. It's very interesting, but it's very complex. All right, verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, man, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, no, 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 he's Elijah. And others said, oh, no, he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, heard of Jesus, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Verse 17, for it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. We'll come back to that because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. All right, let me unwind this ball of string. There are a lot of Herods in the New Testament, all right? So there's uh, Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the guy who ordered the execution of all the babies when Jesus was born, okay? He was a very, very wicked man. Uh, he was married to 10 different women, and he had a lot of children, all right? Really, really bad dude. Well, one of his granddaughters was named Herodias, okay? From what we saw in here, Herodias, she married her uncle, a man named Herod Philip, all right? That's in verse 17. Well, then King Herod, the one that we're talking about, took Herodias to be his wife. So he snaked his brother's incestuous wife to be his wife, okay? Track it with me. It's like a Jerry Springer episode on, uh, in the New Testament. So here's what we have. Divorce, lust, incest, all kinds of wicked stuff going on. John the Baptist hears about this. John the Baptist hears about how Herod had taken his brother's wife, Herodias, to be his wife. And he says, that's not lawful. That's wicked. And so he starts to publicly uh, rebuke Herod and Herodias for the relationship. Well, you can imagine how they felt about that, right? They weren't big fans of it. So Herod had John the Baptist arrested. And Herodias hated John the Baptist. So she held a grudge against him. And she's like, I'm going I'm I'm to kill that guy. So she wanted to have him executed, but she couldn't because Herod protected John. Now, that's, that's interesting. Why did Herod protect John? Well, Herod had this very complicated relationship with John the Baptist. Okay, on the one hand, he knew that John was holy and righteous. You see that in the text? He knew something divine and right was going on in John's ministry, which is why he liked to hear John preach, but he was perplexed by what he said, and he didn't like it that John was calling him out. So he was simultaneously drawn to John, drawn to the message that John was preaching, but also stiff-armed John and didn't like the fact that John was in his business. Okay, so he puts him in jail, but he protects him from execution. It's this kind of weird, complex relationship until this shady birthday party goes down in verse 21. Okay, never said the Bible's not interesting. Shady birthday party. Here's what happens. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. So think cultural influencers. When Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. She went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king, this is King Herod, was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, that's important, he did not, did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. So Herod throws this birthday party, and he invites you know, all the big wigs, so the nobles, military commanders, all the other leading men in society. And then Herodias' daughter from her first marriage, 
a 17-year-old girl named Salome danced in front of all these men, okay? So you've got a 17-year-old girl dancing in front of a bunch of drunk, lustful guys. So I will allow you to draw implications about what kind of dance this was, okay? It was not a great scene. Well, everyone was very pleased with what she did, and so Herod, in kind of this act of like, uh, you know, audaciousness and look how powerful I am, said, I'll give you anything that you want. And Herodias, seizing the opportunity, said, ask for the execution of John the Baptist. So she goes to Herod in front of all these guys, and she says, hey, I want you to execute John the Baptist and bring me his head. And it says that Herod was exceedingly sorry, but he wasn't willing to lose face in front of his friends, in front of these powerful men, in front of these cultural influencers. He wasn't willing to be shamed by them. He wasn't willing to be canceled by them, maybe. And so he had John executed. And the reason Mark tells us all of this is to explain Herod's reaction to Jesus in verse 16. Herod heard of Jesus. He heard about the works he was doing. He heard about the message he proclaimed, but he misunderstood Jesus. He did not believe in Jesus because he was still caught up on John. He thought, John the Baptist has come back to life, and he's going to come confront me. Not only is he preaching now, now he's got all this supernatural power. Why was Herod so freaked out? Like, like why not just, he'd killed lots of people. Why not just move on? Because here's what happened. He believed, he believed John in his conscience. He knew that what John was saying was true, but he wasn't willing to separate from the world to respond. He was drawn to the message. He liked to hear him preach, but he wasn't willing to give up his lifestyle. So what did he do? Herod killed his conscience so he could keep his mistress. Herod killed his conscience so he could keep his mistress. Let me ask you, what was the source of unbelief in Herod's life? Was it a lack of exposure to the word of God? No. I mean, he heard repeatedly one of the greatest preachers in world history. Jesus was in his region. He had heard about him. He knew what he was doing. He had heard the gospel. Was it that he had no internal sense that it was true? No, he did have an internal sense. He was drawn to it. It resonated with his conscience. He heard John gladly. He protected him. So why didn't Herod believe? Worldliness. Worldliness. Worldliness was the source of unbelief in Herod's life, and it can be in ours as well. It's number two. Herod was unwilling to part with the pleasures and applause of the world to follow Jesus. He was intrigued by John. He was drawn to the truth that John proclaimed. But in the end, his unbelief sprang from his love of the world. What did Herod love? He loved power. He loved comfort. He loved wealth. He loved pleasure. In particular, he loved Herodias more than he loved the truth. The fundamental worldview of the Bible, stick with me. The fundamental worldview of the Bible is that you are either a citizen of the kingdom of God or you are a citizen of the kingdom of the world. Right? The, the Bible is very binary about this. You're either one of God's children or you are a child of wrath. If you are part of the kingdom of God, you must separate yourself from the desires of the world. You must put worldly desires to death. If you don't, your worldly desires will quench your faith just like they did in Herod's life. I know that's not very popular. I know it feels very exclusive, but it is the consistent testimony of all the scriptures. Look, Jesus said it in John 15, 18. John said it in 1 John 2, 15 through 16. Paul said it in Romans 12, 2. And Peter said it in 1 Peter 2, 11. When you have Jesus, John, Paul, and Peter all saying the same thing, it is an open and shut case, okay? You don't have to like it, but it is what the Bible teaches. You can't love the things of the world and love God. You just can't do it. Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The flesh there just means the desires of the world. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. 
To grow in our faith, we must separate from the things of this world. We must learn to love God and learn his, love his characteristics and love what he loves and put to death our fleshly desires. I'm not talking about becoming Amish, okay? I'm not talking about creating some goofy Christian version of everything that's in the world. I'm talking about becoming a people who behave differently because we believe differently. I'm talking about being shaped more by God's word than you are by your professor or your boss or your favorite talk show host. I'm talking about becoming a church that is attractive because we are so different. A church that is exclusive in our beliefs, but inclusive in how we welcome, serve, love, and forgive people. Look, the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different than the world, we invariably attract the world. When the church is utterly different, absolutely different from the world, we attract the world. Look, a city set on a hill attracts people because it's so different. It's like, oh, there's a landscape. Everything's the same. Oh, there's a city on a hill. I'm going to go there. Cities on hills don't blend in. They don't fit in. They don't get retweeted, okay? Like, they look different. That's why they attract people. Think about it. If I'm just going to get up here and tell you everything that your phone already tells you, why would you come? Like, why deal with driving here and meeting a bunch of people and awkward social interaction and getting your kids here? Like, it's a lot of work. If I'm just going to get up here and tell you everything you can get on your iPhone, like, why bother coming? But what if I get up here and I proclaim something that is very different than what you get on your iPhone? What if I proclaim, hey, actually, religion is not just a subjective emotional crutch like you've been told by your, you know, world religions professor. Actually, uh, God isn't like a subjective idea that we get to define on our own. Uh, God is an objective reality who created and created us in his image, and we don't have the right to create him in our image. What if God revealed himself in a book? What if God revealed himself in the Bible as Christians have forever believed? And in that book, we learn about where we came from, and we learn about what's wrong with the world, and we learn about hope and salvation. And there is a way that you can be cleansed of your sins and forgiven and become a child of God, filled with the Holy Spirit and transformed. And you can actually be sent out as an ambassador of good news and you can affect change and life transformation in your family and in your friend group and in your community. Would you maybe come for that? Like, I think you might. I think that might get you out of bed. I think that might get you here on time. I think that might get your hands up in worship. If all I'm gonna do is regurgitate what your phone already tells you, why bother? Right? But if I'm going to proclaim something that is radically different than what you've been told by the world and yet, hear me, resonates deeply in your soul, just like Herod, resonates with your conscience, then it is worth coming and then it is worth inviting because you recognize something supernatural is going on, not because of me, but because of this word, but because of God's spirit. Friends, God has always, hear me, always intended there to be a bold, clear line between the church and the world. Always. Bold, clear line. When we make that line fuzzy, we don't do the church or the world any good. Bold, clear line between who are the people of God and who are not. So here's what that means for you personally. You ready? The goal is not to be as much like everybody else as you can while also being a Christian, but to be as different from everybody who is not a Christian as you can possibly be. Why? Your ambition is to be like Christ. And the more like him you become, the more unlike everyone who is not a Christian you will be. You tracking with me? The goal is not to look as close to everyone else as you possibly can while still holding on to your faith. The goal is to look radically different because you are following Christ. Herod was so close. He listened to John preach. He heard about Jesus. Friends, he could have been saved. 
but he wasn't. Why not? Because he traded eternal pleasure for sensual pleasure. He traded divine approval for the applause of his friends. He killed his conscience to keep his mistress. He gained the world, but forfeited his soul. So here's the question. What is your Herodias? What is your Herodias? What is the thing in your life that is keeping you from following Jesus? Is it your career? Is it your bank account? Is it your sexuality? What is it that is keeping you from following Jesus? What is the thing in the world that you're trying to gain and by doing so you're forfeiting your soul? Here's what today is about. I'm calling you to give it up. Give it up. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. 25 years of sensual pleasure was not worth eternal damnation in Herod's life. And no matter what it is that you are looking to in the world, it is not worth it. Jesus said, what good does it do a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? The point of this chapter is you cannot straddle the line. You cannot follow Jesus and also love the world. Jesus said, if the world hates you, remember it's because it hated me first. If the world misunderstands you, it's because it misunderstood me first. What does this mean? It's a call to be different, to be steadfast, to keep shining bright. Because friends, that is how we really love the world. When we hold up the good news of the gospel and say, it's not because I'm great. It's not because I'm so moral. It's not because I'm so disciplined. It's because God is gracious. And if he can be gracious to me, he can be gracious to you. That is the call of this chapter. Give up Herodias. Lean into Jesus. He's better. So where do we get the power to do that? Because it's hard. It's scary. There's a reason that we hold on to Herodias. There's a reason that we hold on to these sensual things. Two things. Number one, you've got to remember your identity. Remember back in verse 11 when Jesus said, hey, when you get rejected, shake the dust off of your robes. What's that all about? Well, in Jesus' time, pious Jews, when they would travel to Gentile lands, when they came back to the Holy Land, they would shake the dust off of their robes as a reminder to themselves and everyone else, I am part of the people of God. I'm different. I've been welcomed into the kingdom that will last forever. So friends, when you are rejected, when you are shamed, when you are criticized, when you are ostracized for your faith, remember, and you have a better identity. You're a member of the kingdom of God. Of of course you're going to be rejected. Those people don't, don't know God. So Jesus says, hey, shake the dust off. Don't let the rejection stick. Keep moving. You have a better inheritance. And second, remember the rejection of Christ for you. Christ faced the only rejection that can really crush you so that you can face secondary rejections with courage. How do I mean? Jesus faced the rejection of God the Father. He faced the scorn and the contempt and the wrath of God for every single sin that you have committed. Why? So that you wouldn't have to. Jesus was rejected so that you could be accepted. And now you're a child of God. You are a child of God. You are an heir of the king. You have a name and a place and an inheritance that no one can take away. Who cares what the peasants think when the king approves of you? Who cares? So come out from the world. Give up Herodias. Put those desires to death. Take up the mantle of a pilgrim. Set your face like flint towards the heavenly city. Remember your identity. Remember your inheritance. Remember your calling. Shine bright in the world to honor Christ so that others might be saved. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, give us faith. Give us faith that we might be moved by these things 
that we might be changed by these things, and we might be filled with the power of your spirit to take the good news of the gospel out into the world. Father, I pray for everyone listening to me right now that you would impress on them what it is that's holding them back, what it is that is keeping them from following you at all or following you more closely, and that they'd give it up, that we would not hold on to the things of this world that are so temporary when the things of heaven are so eternal and wonderful. So God, give us faith to give up Herodias and to follow you, believing that you are better and you are trustworthy. For all this in your name.